When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about how a Los Angeles neighborhood, Boyle Heights, became a bastion of progressive democracy. For that, we turn to George Sanchez. He's author of the award-winning book, Becoming Mexican-American, and he teaches American studies and ethnicity and history at USC. He's also the president of the Organization of American Historians. His new book is titled Boyle Heights. We reached him today in L.A. George Sanchez, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, John. Well, Boyle Heights, for those who don't know, is the Chicano and Mexican-American neighborhood in Los Angeles. It's just five minutes east of City Hall across the L.A. River. Today, it's known as the heartland of Chicano culture. Historically, would you call Boyle Heights a ghetto or a barrio? Well, I I guess I would call it uh, a little bit of that and uh, also a kind of multiracial neighborhood. So it's always been a working class neighborhood. It's always been a place for people who worked in the nearby factories uh, and industry. But it, but it, uh, I don't think the people in Boyle Heights would call themselves living in a in a ghetto or a barrio. I think they would describe Boyle Heights as very multiracial, very very American. Therefore, from their perspective, and it wasn't really until after 1960 that it became majority Latino. So. Boyle Heights has tended to separate itself off a little bit from the rest of East Los Angeles, thinking of itself as with this unique history of activism across racial groups. So I think, though, many people would see it as a barrio, and it certainly has had you know, a working class background. It, it, it's certainly much more than that. You show how lots of immigrant groups started out there in the 20th century. First, East European Jews and Italians, Japanese immigrants, even white Southerners. How come they all picked Boyle Heights? Um, Well, first of all, a lot of the rest of Los Angeles uh, was often not available to them. Um, There was racially restrictive covenants. And in the early part of the 20th century, that included not only restrictions against African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, but also many white ethnics that would otherwise have moved other places. Um, Uh, But also, it was fundamentally close to the growing industry of Los Angeles along the L.A. River uh, in the industrial section to the south uh, near the city of Vernon. So it was a place that one could afford and could be close to various places of employment. And I think that's why Boyle Heights became such a, a place to land when you first arrived in Los Angeles. You open your book on the eve of World War II with a story about two high school girls, Molly Wilson and Sandy Saito. Uh, tell us what you found out about them and about that letter Sandy Saito sent to Molly Wilson, June 1st, 1942. So let me tell you first about how we got the letter. Um, we, uh, we were doing, uh, and this was when I was working with the Japanese American National Museum to do a, an exhibition on Boyle Heights. 
and an elderly African-American woman, uh, turned out to be Molly Wilson, came in with two uh, bags, uh, you know, grocery bags full of letters and said, you know, I think I want to give these to you. Um, and it turned out these were letters, uh, return mail from letters she had sent to her Japanese-American friends while, while she was in high school. And they would send back these letters to her uh, all through the time that they were in internment camp. So basically around four years or so. Um, and she had kept them in her closet for 50 years. Wow. Um, and so she walked in and she, you know, we were kind of amazed uh, about this. And it and Molly had uh, as they were heading into high school um, in 1942, um, it, you know, this was the time in which Japanese Americans were interned uh, by President Roosevelt. Um, Molly was very upset. She was a 14 year old, very upset about about this, taking away her, her best friends, essentially, as she entered high school. And so her own personal form of protest was to write a letter to each of her closest friends every week throughout the war. She just said, as long as they're away, I'm going to keep writing. And she did. She kept it up all through high school. Um, and it turns out that it tells you a lot of stories because when we interviewed uh, her and her friends, um, her friends were the ones that told us the story about them, that group in junior high school, in which uh, they had stood up for Molly because when Molly, Molly was very popular and when she uh, was going to run for student body president of Hollenbeck Junior High School, um, the principal called her aside and said, Molly, we don't think it's a good idea for you to be to be a student body president of this school. She didn't really understand why. And then she figured it out that it was because she was black. And the friends were so outraged that they all decided none of them would run for student body offices. They were all ready to, to do, you know. And so it was that backing up of her that led Molly to feel very uh, wounded when, when uh, Japanese Americans were interned. Roosevelt High School would end up losing one third of its student body, mm -hmm. um, its student body president, its uh, editor of the school newspaper uh, when, when entering World War II. And that letter, that letter of June 1st, which you reproduce in your book, has a drawing as part of it. Tell us about the drawing. So um, the first place that Japanese Americans who were coming from Boral Heights were interned was the Santa Anita racetrack. And they were kept in basically stalls that had been set up for horses. And so this letter was writing to Molly, if you want to visit, this is what you would encounter. And, and Sandy uh, drew, uh, you know, the fence where Molly would stand, armed guards, and then where, where her friends could stand. And it turns out that Molly wasn't alone, uh, along with a lot of other Boyle Heights residents who were not Japanese Americans, to go and visit those Japanese Americans at Santa Anita. It was close enough that people could get there. And that was the summer of 42 before they were sent off to more permanent uh, internment camps. So it, it, a pretty powerful statement from a 14-year-old you know, perspective. Amazing. Uh, let's talk about a couple of specific uh, historical moments, starting with Jewish Boyle Heights, a history that is being recovered these days. Um, Jewish Boyle Heights is very important. Jews were probably the, the largest group in Boyle Heights uh, from in the 20s, the 30s, um, and really uh, up to World War II. Um, they uh, came from Eastern European backgrounds uh, primarily, but they had often already spent time somewhere in the East, uh, New York or Chicago or, or Philadelphia, somewhere. And so Los Angeles was a secondary area of migration. These were working class Jews. They tended to be people who were affiliated with uh, 
a number of labor unions in uh, the city of Los Angeles. Um, so a lot of union activity sort of centered in Boyle Heights. Uh, garment workers, hatters, carpenters unions all set up shop in Boyle Heights. Um, they also were heavily uh, Yiddish speaking. The history of Yiddish, uh, the Yiddish background in Boyle Heights is really critical to understand what was going on. And uh, at that point, people were investing in Yiddish uh, as a way of sort of combating uh, what they saw was happening in Europe in the 1930s. And so there was a lot of uh, newspapers, there was uh, uh, poetry circles, there, were, there was uh, folk uh, uh, schools for, for kids. Um, so the Yiddish life in Boyle Heights was actually fairly uh, substantial. Uh, the Jews, however, also lived among other people. So one of the things I think is really critical is to understand that the story sometimes it's told today as if Jews used to live there and then they left and other people moved in like Mexicans and so forth. When in reality, Jews were living in a multiracial community. And so um, th there's just uh, all this interesting interaction that occurs um, really from the beginning of the 20th century all through uh, World War II um, that speaks to the fact that, that Boyle Heights was absolutely a multiracial place. Um, it doesn't mean that there wasn't discrimination in Boyle Heights, different kinds of backgrounds, but it does mean that, that um, uh, the, the community formations were happening uh, with an acknowledgement of how mixed Boyle Heights was. One of the biggest political events in the history of Boyle Heights of the last century that you recount came in spring 1968, a very surprising uh, not the organized civil rights movement, not the labor movement, but high school students walking out in protest against conditions in their schools. Talk, let's talk about the high school walkouts of 1968. Sure. Um, I was able to interview uh, several participants um, and particularly focused on women who seemed to be under understudied uh, in that lead up to, to the 68 walkouts. Um, one of the things that happened uh, in the 50s and 60s is the, the makeup of high schools in Boyle Heights actually changed dramatically from being overwhelmingly Jewish and Japanese to a much more Mexican-oriented um, uh, student body. However, there was still a lot of uh, real basic uh, uh, differences between the education that they got. The Mexicans were often put in home economics or in uh, auto shop, not in college prep courses. And the college prep curriculums that each of the schools had were often still very white and very very Asian American. So, so that differential drove a lot of Mexican American students to really wonder what was going on in their schools. Why wasn't there more Mexican American teachers? Uh, why weren't they being encouraged to college? And so beginning in the early 60s, um, Mexican American students went to Camp Hess Kramer uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains, where they they partnered with uh, older students, with some teachers, Sal Castro was among them, and, and really learned about, um, you know, what was happening much, you know, beyond their own community in Boyle Heights. They realized the differentials between schools on the west side and the east side that they were on, um, and they began to organize themselves at a local level uh, to enact some kind of protest. Um, they also learned from what was what was going on in Los Angeles. They learned from, from the Watts riots. They learned from um, 
other examples of protests, uh, Cesar Chavez, the UFW, um, and they decided they needed to do something uh, very uh, 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 public. And so they were aiming, with the help of Sal Castro and some older college students, to actually uh, walk out at the very end of uh, the 1968 uh, spring semester. Uh, but in fact, what happened was because of a, uh, uh, a, a tension over a theater, Barefoot in the Park, uh, being canceled at uh, one of the schools, uh, they all walk, walked out early in March. And uh, so basically five high schools on the east side of Los Angeles all walked out within the first few days. And it was the biggest urban protest that sort of launched the, the uh, Chicano movement in Los Angeles. Um, again, I think that these high school students have to be recognized as high school students who in the spring of 68, of course, were going through tremendous upheaval in their lives while, you know, uh, Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. They met with Robert Kennedy uh, 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 just just weeks before his assassination. Um, and they were also trying to graduate. These tended to be uh, fairly, uh, you know, student body uh, officers, uh, people who were, were very active. Uh, for them, it was a learning experience um, that uh, really affected them for the rest of their lives. And uh, so many of them went on to incredible careers as teachers, as artists, as uh, other, you know, filmmakers, um, that that group is actually a very important group in kind of the history of Chicano Los Angeles. By 1970, Boyle Heights was over 90% Latino. Of course, that was divided between recent immigrants, many of whom were undocumented and people who had been born or spent decades living there. And this is also the era that's known as the rise of gangs. Boyle Heights became the kind of the gang capital of America by the mid 80s. Let's talk about the place of gangs in this history. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that happens in Boyle Heights is that the uh, many of the, the lower middle class, you might say, had moved out of Boyle Heights, not just Jewish and Japanese Americans, but also Mexican Americans. They had moved to the east, Pico Rivera, uh, other places like that. And so you end up having impoverishment, but you also have these public housing units, which, which came from the 40s and had been really uh, not very well kept. And so for very working class people, this was a, and, and very poor people, this was a place to land in Boyle Heights. Um, Aliso Village uh, in the Flats area was a was a huge place, but so was Ramona Gardens, the other the other public housing units. So you had uh, some of these undocumented folks who landed there um, with at a time in which, particularly in the 1980s, social services were being pulled out of places like Boyle Heights. There wasn't uh, summer jobs for young people, a whole bunch of things. So that led to a proliferation of gangs. And so you've had these interesting responses from people who I think knew Boyle Heights history, um, the, the most obvious one being Homeboy Industries uh, and Father Gregory Boyle, using the Catholic parish of Dolores Mission to really have an alternative approach to dealing with gangs. He realized that many of these young gang members were coming out of mixed status legal families. <clears throat> they were either undocumented themselves, the young people, or they were children of undocumented with very little uh, opportunities to sort of rise up in the 80s and 90s. And he started Homeboy Industries 
as a way to replace gang involvement with jobs and uh, raised money essentially to, to make sure that jobs were available to these folks and really saw in them um, the possibility of different kinds of futures. And so Homeboy Industries, which has become one of the largest gang intervention networks um, really in the entire country, started in a Boyle Heights context in Aliso Village in the Flats area um, and, and very much is attached to, to the fate of uh, these uh, undocumented families that, that uh, began to really be a, a very large minority, if not the majority, of Boyle Heights. Today, Boyle Heights is fighting gentrification. Will it be able to remain a place where low-income Latinos can raise their families? I think that depends. I think it depends on uh, both changing city and state policy uh, so that more low-income housing is available uh, across the board in Los Angeles and Southern California. But it also depends on, uh, I think, a focus on what I, what I find to be the most interesting part of gentrification in Boyle Heights, most people will point to gentrification and look at simply at race as an indicator of gentrification. Certainly in many other communities, Echo Park and so forth, that's what you've seen is a transformation of race. Um, so far in Boyle Heights, it hasn't led to a transformation of Latinos, but it's led to uh, more middle-class Latinos or college-educated Latinos returning to Boyle Heights, even if they grew up there. They're now coming back there. They're buying homes. There's more professionals in the neighborhood. So the question is, can low-income housing remain a priority in Boyle Heights? Um, and uh, can Boyle Heights remain a place that newcomers can feel that they can come in and, and it's a welcoming place for them? I think that's really the, the key. It's not so much a racial issue right now as it is um, really the, the, the class differences that have to be uh, maintained and, and nurtured um, in terms of, of housing for everyone. The story of a neighborhood that was strong because of its diversity and that continues to be a bastion of grassroots progressive democracy in Los Angeles. Boyle Heights is the new book by George Sanchez. George, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.